Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, welcome to the Ruler podcast. And if you're listening to this anytime close to when we made it, happy Christmas. In this edition, I catch up with the extraordinary Pippa York, writer, broadcaster and one of Britain's most successful cyclists, formerly known as Robert Miller. We'll also be hearing from a couple of pros on what Christmas Day has in store for them. We start, though, with news about one of the UK's most talented riders, news which caused a degree of surprise and shock when it first emerged. Nothing to do with Chris Froome. This is the news that Helen Wyman, multiple British cyclocross champion, former European champion, is without a main sponsor for next year. Ironic, given that this season is already shaping up as one of her best. Ruler's Ian Cleverly caught up with her at a race in an unlikely cross venue near Girona. So last year I broke my collarbone and I plummeted down the world ranking to 13th in the world. And it's really, your world ranking relates to your start position on the grid and it's really important to be at worst in the top 16 in the world. So because I lost all of my points, it's a rolling ranking system, I lost all of my points, I've come to smaller races, to C2 races, to get as many as I can. I live in the south of France in the summer and so for me it's only actually two and a half hours from my house and I can come down, have a training camp and then finish off with the race before I go back to Belgium. Racing when it's absolutely rock hard and bone dry, I guess you don't get to do too often, certainly not in Belgium. No, the, the courses are very different here. Um, the last course I did actually was a, a C1 race in um, Aloria and that was in the Basque Country and it was super muddy, it was amazing, it was a fantastic race. Here, it's dry. <laughs> I mean, it was frozen this morning because it was we're in the mountains, but now it's, yeah, 13 degrees and it's warm and dry and dust and, and things like that. And there's so many corners in the races, it's crazy. But they are trying to make the most of what they have, and so they've used the banks and things like that. And you can get gaps, it's just super fast racing. This is all new to me, Catalan Cross, but in, in Spain it's Cat- Catalonia and the Basque Country, and I'm guessing the rest of the country doesn't even bother, do they? Pretty much. <laughs> I mean, most of the races like Ligori, which was a World Cup once, and those races are all over in Basque Country, and, and then, yeah, you've got the scene over here. And I mean... It is a really good scene and there's not so many people here today because it's it's midweek but technically it's a holiday because it's St Nicholas Day. The races at the weekend you'll get really good crowds and, and it's a nice scene and the people are friendly and they get excited when foreign riders come down and do really well. In the last few weeks you've had how many wins now and, and you've had World Cup podiums? I mean you're back on top of your game, huh? Yeah, this is my sixth win of the season and I had two World Cup podiums in Begenza, Bonza, 
and uh, and Zevin. So yeah, I I it's got muddy, and so as soon as it gets muddy, I start to get really good results, and it's what I'm naturally better at. So you know, it's easier for me to do that. And I was in Zevin. I was I tried my absolute hardest to win that bike race. I really felt I could win it, and it's been a long time since I've felt I've been in that position in a World Cup, which is really. I'm really excited for and I know I've trained harder again since then and so I'm really excited for Christmas Barkery. And you also now have four Koppenberg cobbles and I, I, I believe <laughs> Steph had to make some shells to um, accommodate the first three and now you've gone and ruined it and he has to start again. Yeah, very much. Yeah, we have in, in our house in France, it's, all, it's a really old house but the inside is brand new and in the building work he actually cut into the walls and he created these glass shelves so that I can display the three cobbles and then my world's medal my European champs win medal and a national champs win medal so that it's like a it's a really cool display basically yeah then I went and won a fourth one and now it just just doesn't work just, just ruined it ruined it poor stuff I mean you know the things he has to do for you is ridiculous now after eight seasons with Kona am I right in thinking yeah. you know you are out of contract how does that work I've had a really good run with Kona. They're really good guys. They've supported me for a really long time. And it's it's hard in um, in racing to, to be able to stay with a, a company for such a long time. And so they've been fantastic. But unfortunately, they've restructured or I don't know really what, but um, they haven't renewed my contract. So December 31st is my last day as a Kona rider. And from the 1st of January, yeah, I'm on my own. <laughs> and how do you... What have you, irons have you got in the fire to, to, to make something happen for next season? There's a few things currently which we're working on. Um, every other sponsor that I've had has stayed with me. They're really happy with what I've done. I don't think Kona were disappointed in what I've done. It was it was purely a restructure thing. But all my other sponsors stayed with me and some of them have upped their input, which is really good of them. And we're working on some other things. And, and I will definitely continue um, until the end of the season uh, and then after that uh, yeah we need to put more things in place gridding world champs wise currently points wise you'd be on the second row of the grid so over the next couple of races the idea the idea is your aim is to put yourself in the front row and uh, put yourself in with good chance of a medal yeah I had four goals for this season and one of them was to win Koppenberg that, that's an, always a goal for me and, and this year particularly it was really important with a new course and um, one of them was to be um, the second row, guaranteed second row in my Worlds and I've just gone up to 10th in the world ranking and so now I've had to reassess <laughs> and I've still got uh, extra World Cup points to gain which other people don't have because it's the rolling ranking and they already have the points so um, I, I think I could be front row for Worlds which would be absolutely fantastic it'd be a dream because you just want to stay out of trouble and you want to have the option to be on the front row to, to get out of trouble and not have to rely on other people being faster around you. So that's the goal and then I have two other goals. <laughs> Which will remain under your jersey. Oh, one of them is nationals because that's like... I was so disappointed I couldn't race nationals last year and that would be the first time in about 15 years that I haven't raced. And... I I really want to win nationals again because nine's a nice number, but ten's like a really round number, isn't it? It's like satisfying. And Nikki obviously wants to win as well, and she's super strong this year too. But I really 
I really, really want to get that jersey back. Helen Wyman. Pippa York, who was one of the stars of this year's Ruler Classic event with her well-informed and sometimes sceptical take on the world of pro cycling. As Robert Miller, she was for many years the most successful British Grand Tour rider with podium finishes and mountain jerseys on her Palmares. In those days, of course, cycling in the UK was very much a fringe sport and her achievements went largely unrecognised by the wider public. So is she surprised by cycling's newfound attention and the mainstream success of events like the Ruler Classic? I've been to similar things in Paris and Brussels, uh, but the, in France and Belgium, cycling's a mainstream sport, so for finally Britain to catch up to that level of interest is, is, has been quite amazing. Do you wish um, the sport had been like this when, when you were uh, racing in the UK, that you had this sort of level of attention? I, I'm not sure there's an answer to that, because if I say no, it sounds like I was more interested in being in Europe, and if I say yes, it sounds like I was sorry to be in Europe, so there's no real answer to that question. It's more about the sort of level of attention. The, the level of interest. Pro probably it would have made my interaction with British journalists a, a little bit easier because they would have come equipped with knowledge that being a professional cyclist in the 80s and the start of the 90s wasn't a kind of seasonal job. So it would have made that interaction slightly easier. I'm not sure it would have changed how I viewed my whole career because basically I had to be based in Europe so... 50-50 answer to that question. This past year, the past few months, have been, um, I imagine, pretty extraordinary uh, for you, just the level of, a, uh, level of attention. They've been interesting in the, the... When I competed, I didn't realise that the effect of my career at that elite top level affected so many people. I just got on with it and assumed that what I was doing, okay, it was a pioneer in some parts of it, but you know, the, the rest of it was kind of following on with the, the previous kind of top-level people who went before me. So I just assumed I went there to do to do hopefully better than they had done in the past, and um, I just got on with that. And I didn't realise that it was kind of followed so closely back in the UK. And when you announced um, you know, your, your transition um, earlier this year, when you became public about it, from everything that I saw, the response from, especially from cycling fans, was 100% positive or seemed very positive. Were you expecting that? I didn't expect it to be so overwhelmingly positive. I expected that there would be less friction in these times than it would have been 10 years ago. So I saw the change from my daughter going to school and the education they received and the way they dealt with diversity was very different to my generation and the generation that just came after that. So probably the, a big kind of cultural change from the millennium onwards in that the whole diversity and equality and, and, and gay rights issues, if you want to take it to that level, then um, that became much more apparent that it wasn't anything that was kind of to be feared so having to wait so, so long to make my kind of announcement it, it kind of reassured me that although there's still doubts that it can go badly the feeling I got from, from speaking to my daughter and to, to kind of people who were involved in cycling that it would go okay and, and it, I think it went really well
you always gave the impression during your career that you were someone who wasn't particularly comfortable with the limelight, weren't particularly comfortable being a, a, a celebrity, even in on the continent. <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't call being a professional sports person celebrity. You were first and foremost, you were you were there to pr- produce performance, and I emphasised that more than I did the media part of it. So. I think that for for somebody, a, a kind of UK athlete, being at world level was a kind of rarity, and it didn't matter if that was cycling or any other kind of sport. So the the previous people came back from that, and they didn't necessarily be in a comfortable position financially to just choose what they wanted to do. So they would kind of have to throw themselves into the kind of media media scrum for a to, to secure a living so I think that that was the general perception that the public had that when you were a professional person in sport then you also had this totally accessible part of your life and that wasn't what I saw around about me in Europe that we 100% focus what we did and the media part was something that we did afterwards we didn't it wasn't actively sought out but were you uncomfortable with fame because you were famous whether you were a celebrity or not you were you were famous you were well known especially on the continent um, were you uncomfortable with that or no I, but the, how I dealt with it wasn't the, the normal way of dealing with it so I took my cultural clues for that kind of level of of fame as you call it of I called it achievement. I suppose the fame is a result of the achievement. Yeah, so I took that, that, that interest in how I went about my life from people like McEnroe and Navratilova, so slightly aggressive, you know, not, not the norm that went before, not the, the polite kind of British English way of always saying sorry, so they would say, you know, you, you know the, kind of, the classic McEnroe thing, you've got to be kidding. So I kind of took... The, the, they were my role models in how to, to, to deal with sport and, and, and the interest in it. And um, yeah, that's what I did. And that allowed me to have this little barrier which kept some me time. That barrier was part of that, your sort of knowledge that you were actually living not how you wanted to be living, not how you, not how you were. No, not really. That, 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 the, the whole kind of gender stuff that I would have going on in the background at times was a totally different set of issues to deal with. The, 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 the media person, persona that I had of being slightly difficult and awkward and not readily accessible allowed me to perform to my 100%. So if I'd given a little bit more time to do media stuff, that would have meant less time for recovery, less time to figure out what was going wrong. So that, that was the calculation I made. That I, I wasn't employed to appear on News at 10 every day. I was employed to be in the front and bike races, and, and I prioritised that. During the sort of period where you were out of the public eye after you retired from uh, pro cycling, did you still follow the sport, or did you cut yourself off from it? Did you still follow it as a fan or an informed observer? At first I did follow it and then once my transition became serious and I reached the end of the, the kind of um, 
the parts where you have professional help, once I reach the end of that, you, you get a time when you kind of, you, you've reached the end of what they're helping you with and you're out there into the world on your, not on your own, but you're, the counselling and the help that you get from the, the medical profession, that comes to an end at a certain point and you have to become your own person. And, and when I became that, that new person, I had less and less interest in cycling. So I kind of let it go. I didn't, I wasn't interested in who won Stuart de France stages or, or, or the, the kind of classics and that stuff. I had to let it go because I needed that space inside my head to build up the, the kind of persona that I was going to become. When did you start taking an interest? I presume that you now do have an interest in follow cycling. Or so, yes. <laughs> um, when did that? When did you start doing that again? Uh, I think that was. Well, I wouldn't say blame. That, that, that was thanks to David Miller when he stopped his his career. He invited me to his book launch. I felt that there was a small space in that kind of world where I would could kind of exist on the sidelines and I became good friends with David's mother Avril so Avril became like a big sister to me and um, took over that kind of role of like a big sister does advising you not to mess up here and there so uh, that kind of got me back into the whole kind of doing a little bit of journalism here and there and writing stories and um, telling tales. Well, you describe it as telling tales and, and, and telling stories. I, you know, one of the uh, things I think a lot of people would say is you're a very good writer. You're an extremely good journalist. But sometimes um, the things that you write in Rouleau magazine are amongst the best things in, in the magazine. Have you always been a writer? No, I was dreadful at English at school. Unsurprisingly, being in, Gla- being in Scotland and being in Glasgow, the, the English wasn't exactly a a subject which pushed forward, you know, so English history and all that stuff basically touched upon it. And English language, I had no real interest in it. But then when I was a writer, I, um, a few of the magazines asked me to write a kind of column every month. And my skills improved by doing that. So my spelling and the kind of structure of how to put it together and where to put pauses and paragraphs and kind of tell you the whole tale that you're going to tell that 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 developed into the kind of where it is now but it's it's everything I write I criticize it I send it and then I realize that I could have written that better so there's always that kind of obsessive compulsive part of my character which thinks I could have done that slightly better I remember reading an article that you wrote years and years ago in one of the uh, psycho magazines about all the sort of uh, old wives' tales, almost that, that have been passed down to um, uh, to you as a professional cyclist about what to eat and when to sleep and all that sort of thing. I remember thinking that was one of the best articles about cycling I'd read at the time, and was, was sort of disappointed you didn't do much more at that stage. Well, didn't that turn into the whole kind of rules things, that the Illuminati rules? We used to because we didn't come from the French, Belgian kind of Dutch culture of it was ingrained into you from the age of twelve or whenever you started racing. So we looked at that and thought, I'm going to climb into a team car, it's 30 degrees, there's no air conditioning in there, I feel like I'm at 40 degrees and I have to wear a woolly hat, are you nuts? And then you had to put, you had to always cover your legs up and and stuff like that and it didn't make common sense to us. So we laughed, We, we kind of thought, this is just crazy. And it came, kind of turned into this whole 
we looked at it totally different from the from the Europeans did we kind of thought that's not right these guys are crazy but we went along with it because that's what you did I remember there was something about taking the middle out of baguettes but I can't remember which bit oh, you were supposed you, to eat you take the middle because, <laughs> because the, the, the bread's going to slow you down somehow you take the, the kind of doughy bit out of the middle of your baguette so it doesn't drop into your stomach and spend ages there but then the, the, the really silly thing about that is, is then they would advise you to eat a steak which takes seven hours to process so it, you had to throw away the bit of bread in, the bit of doughy bread in the middle because that would slow you down but then you had a steak which you'd still be processing in your bed the next day Have you enjoyed the bits of TV commentary you've done? I did I, 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 I thought um, I'd done a little bit before and I wasn't in a place personally I wasn't in a place where I wanted to I felt like I had anything to add to it probably still too close to my career but nowadays I can look at it with a more reflective role in, in what I have to say so it's not the same way as with, with um, Ned and Dave on ITV4 where they're kind of filling up the, the general time and David's telling you tactics which are going to happen or, or may happen the, the role that they had with the guests was to add some insight into certain parts of it and then bring in little stories of wh what happened to you on those days. So that was quite interesting and it was, it was different to what I'd been expecting I'd been expecting before when I'd done it before. Are you going to be doing more? Do you know yet? I don't know. I, I would love to do more. I don't know. Um, I don't know that's up to them. The other thing, uh, uh, with your writing, are you at a stage where you would want to write an autobiography? <laughs> You know, if, if I had a pound for every person that asked me when I was going to write a book, I'd probably have a chateau somewhere. You know, it's, I, people have been asking me for probably the last 10 years to do it. And I say to them, I have the idea, I have the title, I have the cover, and I have the general feel for the stories. But it isn't your normal sporting my life stories. So there's no speaking about gaining 20 seconds here or using this gear ratio or, or we had new hel new aero helmets or overshoes. There's, there's none of that. It's just stories which happened kind of round about the bike race or after the bike race or on, on the way to the bike race. Kind of, and that kind of, those kind of stories, because I, I find them more entertaining than the the kind of basic facts of I did this, I did that I don't, I don't see life as basic kind of facts, I, I look at it and I want to be entertained by what I write and I want people to be entertained by that kind of story but Surely the response that you've had in the past few months shows that there's, there's a real interest in that, if you did write that book there would be enough there probably to buy is, it. but then I'm, I'm, I'm aware that now the, the, the things I do, the, so the things I'm doing now are, are in the kind of Christmas period where everybody puts out their DVD and their CD and their book and I'm aware that I, I don't live in that world, so I'm not here to sell anything. And I, the kind of idea of the whole autobiography, it, it's, not, it's not an autobiography in the sense that I'm going to tell you anything about my kind of inner person. It's more stories of which happened to me in various places at various times. And I, I don't want it written in any kind of chronological order. So the first story, which I, I thought... I, I started writing the first kind of story that I wanted to, to write. 
and it was a totally random story, which vaguely had something to do with a bike race. I'm not, I won't say any more about it because it, 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 then, when you, if I do, we do write the, the, the book, or the, the stories that will be made into a book, and it, it kind of makes sense. But it's all totally, slightly strange stories. Well, I look forward to it if you ever, if you ever if do. I ever do it. <laughs> yeah. um, you've said a few times that you don't want uh, necessarily. You don't see yourself as a sort of as a campaigner. That's not. That's not how you see yourself. But have there been people who've got in touch with you? Have there been young people who've, who've, who've talked to you about their own situations? And has that changed your mind in any way about, about your role? Or Individually, no, people haven't come to see me. It's interesting you ask that because I've just been to Stonewall. And I'm what they call an influencer in their terms. So... I'm introducing them to certain people where they want to have improve improve various things which have happened. So quite soon they're going to go and see British Cycling and see how they can improve their kind of uh, human resources policies. I think is how they term it. So that, that you know they have a, a plan for their performance, but the 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 plan that they have they've had for looking after the people that come into contact with the organisation could be better than the standard kind of bog standard government speak stuff that they have so British Cycling has been known for being the, the standard for performance and so now they've realised with the, the issues that have come out that they could be, they have the chance to get their kind of human contact and resources and that whole kind of inclusion and equality thing, they can be the, the standard for that, for the other sporting bodies which have also had problems that's something that you might be happy to help with or yeah i think it's important with the 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 profile i have to use that to make things better so in your sporting career you you set down standards and the people that come afterwards try to beat them and, and and that's why you that's part of why you do it you try to be the best from your kind of area and then the best from your country and if you're if you're talented enough, you become the best in the world. So, and the the guys that come next, they they try to better that. So that that that's understandable. But there's also that kind of influence that you should have using the, the your profile to to make things better for for your children or other people's children, so that they come into a better world. It is it all sounds kind of slightly sethy, but it it kind of makes sense when you see the interaction of how young people are educated today and it's a different different feelings and they have what what they know as safe spaces which our my generation wouldn't have had everybody would just laugh at you with that stuff but i've taught my children that not to put up with the crap that we that i put up so you have to kind of take responsibility for that and then stand up and sit, to say to people of my generation you know that that's not good enough i i don't want my children or their friends to go into your organisation and put up with the crap that you think I'm going to put up with. So the the kind of the way that coaching is going to have to evolve to, to, to meet young people's expectations is go, that's going to have to modify itself and then change. And that will take a certain amount of time because it's been a culture. It's been there for a long time. I've thought a few times that, that given your experiences with British Cycling, the British Cycling Federation, as it probably was then, um, uh, in in the past, you must have looked at some of their problems over the past year or so with a slightly uh, 
wry sort of look. It's, it's not up to me to kind of in launch any kind of investigation and, and what, what they did. You know, they the brief that they were given was to produce medals, and that's what they did. And I think they, somewhere along the line, as it got bigger and bigger and more and more people came in, the, they lost sight that they were dealing with human beings instead of just metal production people. So I think they've now realised that with the, with the stuff that's come out re- quite recently. And, and other sports also, it's not just the cycling. It's, it's that culture of aggressive coaching and um, what I would call the kind of... Um, Shouting at people for results that doesn't in the workplace that doesn't that doesn't happen that doesn't make for a happy happy working environment so the young people of today don't need to put up with that stuff it's not it's not what I want to see and I don't think and I know from speaking to my daughter's friends it's not what they expect to happen to them when they go into any any um, organisation or, or working where the working practices are not what they would expect. Do you expect over the next few years to remain sort of a figure in cycling, remain connected to cycling? I hope so. I hope so. Um, it would seem a shame to kind of waste the opportunity to slightly improve things. And, and I'm a, in no way an activist. I'm not going to be out there with a banner or something. No, I want change and I want it yesterday. I think the, the way to deal with it is to have common sense and explain it in terms where I don't necessarily say it in a kind of council speak where it's all projections and going forward and, and all that kind of using that language. I think it's for, for my generation who is potent, who are usually the people in charge, if you speak to them in a language they understand and you kind of nudge them in the direction of where they want to go, then that, that's how change will happen. If you start demanding things then people that gets people's backs up and they, they kind of say well wait a minute and there's a resistance so I think it's a, it's, it'll be a, a slow change but it, it'll gradually happen So what will you be doing on Christmas Day? A sneaky early ride? A quick half hour on the turbo before the turkey? Nico Roche won't be missing the chance to get out on the road. Christmas Day, first thing I'll do is go for the bike ride um, and then have lunch with my mother and my two brothers in Monaco. Is there uh, a bit of Irish input, a bit of French, a bit of anything else? It's a bit of both. Um, I can't say uh, I do not like my Irish pudding. Uh, <laughs> what's, what's Irish pudding? Come on. No. Irish pudding, you know, it's probably something similar to the British pudding, but we put a bit of Guinness in it, so it tastes nice, and it's also pretty good because it helps it uh, conserve it uh, uh, for a bit longer too. Yeah, glass and champagne. I'll probably have more champagne on the 24th uh, in the evening because in in France with my family we also celebrate the 24th in the evening. Uh, hence my bike ride on the 25th to kind of balance out both days. Uh, but uh, probably a bit of wine um, during. Uh, during Christmas lunch and you know what when I was living in Italy they also celebrate Stephen's Day on the 26th so uh, you could go on for almost a week if you wanted to <laughs> Nico Roche and although Cadell Evans isn't competing anymore he remembers his festive routine 
very well. When I raced, the main thing was that I would go to Australia for the off-season, being the only time that I could uh, see my family, but also because of the summer there in Australia. And I made a habit of going for a ride on Christmas Day, not for the training reason, but because you eat so much food on Christmas Day, you can, if you skip lunch and go for a ride, you actually get to dinner really hungry and can enjoy all the good food. And so I would often go for a, a, have Christmas with my close family in the morning, go for a ride during the day, no traffic on the road, of course, on Christmas Day, normally blaring summer heat, come home, have dinner with my family and extended family, and that was, that was for me a great Christmas Day. Christmas Day at the Wyman House doesn't sound very festive at all, all part of the hard reality of being a pro cross rider. So we drive to Zolda <laughs> and oh, we wake up in the morning, we'll open some presents and then we'll get in the car, we'll drive to Zolda, um, we'll do the course and then we go to our little accommodation, we've got a little um, house just on the back side of the, of the venue and then um, Steph will go to the manager's meeting and then we'll probably have some pasta-based dish for dinner and then go to bed. We'll probably get doping control because they normally come to me as older. <laughs> it's all glamorous, the life of a cyclocross pro, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Last year we had Christmas for the first time in, yeah, ten years. It was really cool. And this year, yeah, back to the grind. <laughs> and that's pretty much it from this edition, apart from the podcast quiz. Last time we asked you which team Brian Home was riding for in 1991 when he won Parry Brussels and Parry Camembert. The answer was Histor Sigma, and Peter Target wins the Ruler T-shirt. This time, the prize is a pair of wonderful socks, from the Wonderful Socks. If you can answer this, Pippa York first won the British National Road Race Championship as an amateur in 1978. When did she last win? When did Pippa York, riding as Robert Miller, last win the British National Road Race Championship? Go to the podcast section of the Ruler website. Full details on how to enter are there. Have a peaceful Christmas. The podcast will be back in 2018. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 